a very great pleasure to be here. It's my first experience of being as far north as this. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we were delighted as we came north to see the, the beauty of the countryside uh, here. Wish we could stay longer. Uh, my subject is the Christian view of spirituality, or the subtitle, What is the Goal of the Christian Life? Clearly a foundational study, uh, much of which I'm sure you will know already, so forgive me for a repeat. But I want to begin by trying to draw attention to the importance of this subject. And I want to refer to a strange and rather sad irony that concerns us all. In the last 100 years to 150 years, it would be true to say that in that constituency of the church, which uh, I would identify with, taking the Bible seriously as the foundation of our faith and so on, the focus of our attention has been very largely the subject of evangelism. Now, now that has not been wrong. I am not trying to imply in any way that that is a wrong focus for Christians at any time to have. But the irony is this, that although this has been our focus, although it has been treated as the rationale of our existence as Christians in this society, in this moment of history, what we have actually witnessed is the culture moving further and further away from Christianity, from its roots. So we come to this moment when just a couple of weeks ago, in the aftermath of the uh, uh, debate in the House of Parliament in relation to the embryo experimentation bill, when uh, Cardinal Hume of Westminster, the Roman Catholic uh, leader in this country. You remember, you saw the headlines in the paper. He said, at this moment, there is no significance to be attached to the expression that this is a Christian country. Now, we may not agree with him. We may disagree with him in some, some respects. But it seems to me that we are very close to that moment if we are not there already. Uh, T.S. Eliot, writing in 1954, interestingly, said this, that he felt even at that time, 1944, uh, a dark period, uh, said that he felt that a Christian country, a Christian nation, would not lose its title Christian merely because it had become materialistic. He saw that more or less as a sort of a backsliding. But that it would become a non-Christian culture only when it had become something else. Now, Chuck Colson has written a book called Against the Night, and one of the titles of the chapters is Living in the New Dark Ages. That is where we are. But you see, the irony to me, this is what I wanted to focus attention on, the irony is that we as Christians have been exhorted, and there has been tremendous energy expended with tremendous sincerity to try to reverse this process by means of evangelism, to recover the Christian uh, culture that has been uh, eroded step by step in the last 100, 100, 200 years. And yet, almost inexorably, we have seen one step after another the loss of that Christian society. How do these things go together? Now, I want to suggest that one of the principal factors in this is that there has been a mistaken understanding amongst us all of this particular subject that we're going to be dealing with this evening, namely the Christian view of spirituality. Not that there has been a lack of concern or interest in the subject of spirituality. Far from it nor because of any absence of sincerity and zeal or even outstanding examples of godliness during this period. Far from it. We can think of whole movements which have been 
dedicated, as it were, to the renewal of spirituality. You think, for example, at the end of the 19th century of the Keswick movement. The deeper spiritual life. You think, for example, of Pentecostalism. Bringing back power into the Christian life uh, at in about 1900. Jesse Penn Lewis, Watchman Nee, whose books have sold thousands and thousands of copies in this country, not to mention the rest of the world. And most recently, the charismatic movement. Now, all these have highlighted, have they not, individual elements of biblical teaching which are quite correct, which one would want to agree with. That's not the problem. What has been missing, I want to suggest, is what I would call an organizing principle. Now, this is a concept that is borrowed from the field of science. That is, an idea, a picture, if you like, which is so fundamental that it controls all the study that you do in that particular area. Something like Newton and his laws of gravity or later Einstein and relativity. Something which is so fundamental that all the study that you do in that field thereafter is controlled by that concept, that idea. That's why it's called an organizing principle, so that as you advance, you cannot come to conclusions which are in contradiction to that organizing principle. Now, in the light of all that the Bible teaches about spirituality, I'm asking the question, what is the organizing principle? And I want to suggest it has been a failure at this point, the lack of an organizing principle amongst us as Christians that has been a serious element in our failure. I want to suggest that the goal of the Christian life, the organizing principle, which we have to keep our minds on when we read all the various texts that relate to the spiritual experience, is simply this. It's absolutely basic. You've heard it thousands of times. I'm just trying to explain it in a new way. And that is the image of God. The image of God. After all, does this not appear at the very beginning of the Bible? Isn't this the description of man that we find? Let us make man, God says, in our own image, after our likeness. So it is a definition. It defines what man is. Man is made in the image of God. Not only that, when we come to the New Testament, we find that this, amongst other things, of course, is the language that Paul uses to describe the change in us from the old man to the new, the process of spirituality. How does he speak of it? Colossians chapter 3, 9 and 10, putting away the old self, we put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Now the word, the Greek word there is icon. In the image of its creator. Clearly he has in mind that reference back there at the very beginning of the Bible. That's where it's all started. Genesis chapter 1. Again, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. We who with unveiled faces all reflect or contemplate, can mean either, reflect or contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into what? His likeness. And the word is the same in the Greek, icon, into his image, into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. So this is not simply something which is lost back there in the Old Testament in Genesis. It's foundational in Paul's mind. And I want to try to explain more about that. The question I want to try to answer specifically is this. What does this concept of the image include? And what is its significance 
for us in the Christian view of spirituality, whether Old Testament or New Testament. Now remember, I'm suggesting it's, it's a big claim that this is the organizing principle that will help us as we go through all the various references like dying to self, putting to death the old man, denying ourselves, being crucified, etc., etc. It will help us to understand these expressions. And the point we must, we must uh, remember is that with this organizing principle, nothing can be taken to contradict it. And that's where some of the problem arises, because that's, I think, where we see the weakness of many of the models of spirituality that have influenced us in the past century at least. Now, I have here two diagrams, which I hope you can all see. Can you see at the back there? This is simply to try to aid our understanding. And I've got a problem. Is that all right? Lift it. Um, how do I lift it? This way. Tilt the top. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There we go. Is that right? Now, this again is, is all clear to us, but I'm just emphasizing this particular aspect. If God has created man, male and female, man and woman, in his image. This is now pre-fall. This is critical to understand. That is, before the fall, before Genesis 3, this is the picture that we have. Now, we all know that. Man's made in the image of God. That's not a problem. But this is what I think often is neglected. What does it actually mean that man, male and female, is made in the image of God? And what I want to stress here is this. Now, it, it may sound a bit surprising to you, is that this is true spirituality. Or, if I could put it another way, this is the perfect human experience at the beginning. This is what spirituality was as God intended it to be. And again, please do not misunderstand me. There was no Bible then. There were no prayer meetings, no churches, and yet man had a perfect spiritual experience. Isn't that right? And he was in a perfect relationship with the living God. All that God had made, he saw was good, very good, including man. Now, what was it that constituted, that made up this experience of man, which was perfect spirituality? What was it? Now, I've drawn these, these uh, um, rectangles here at the bottom. I'm sure at the back you can't read them, but I can read them. Okay, and I'll read them out to you. They're trying to show, and I've left one at the end there blank just to show that this is not an exhaustive picture. You understand. You could say more about it. And it's just trying to help us to get the feel of it. The first is creative. Man was made creative. That is, he was made like God. God is the great creator, capital C. But man, you and I, are no less creative in a sense. Because everything we do, we make, we create. We are making a history. We are making a reality. Not, of course, an infinite creator as God is. Very tiny, a finite creator. But very much a creator with a small c. You get the point? Creative. Even the words we choose, the things we do day by day, are an expression of that image of God, creativity. The second, they have a moral being. It wasn't invented along the way by man as he struggled out of the, um, the mire. It was something which was inherent in man from beginning, from creation, that man had a moral sense, what is later called a conscience. We have a moral nature, so there is an inherent ability to detect that things are right and wrong. Not that that's not distorted. We'll come to that. Third, man is rational. That just means 
that we have a mind, that's the word ratio, a mind which is able to think about things and come to conclusions. I've lost my way, sir. Uh, can you help me to find my way back? Or where do you want to go? Uh, I want to go to such and such a place. And then he will give me directions. So I listen. My mind understands that. I follow it out. And lo and behold, I find myself in Newcastle upon time. You see? See, this, 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 this possibility that man has is not something which exists in the rest of creation. Trees don't have that. Flowers don't have that. Man is made in the image of God. Man has this capacity, glorious capacity. Each of these is glorious. The next one is aesthetic. Sounds complicated. It just means being able to experience beauty. Being able, isn't this wonderful? Being able to experience beauty. And, and of course, these are not in isolation. They run together. My mind is involved in that. I look at a particular building and I say, why is that beautiful? Or a picture or whatever. And likewise, I can actually create beauty. As made in the image of God. Then we are emotional creatures. We are those who have emotions, passions, as they're called. We are able to love, that's the next, to feel sympathy for those who suffer, and so on. Language is a very important aspect. I'm hurrying, because we've got lots to do, deal with. And of course, all this is contained, and not to be minimized, not to be minimized, within a body. None of this is being experienced independently of my body, and there is nothing wrong with my body. That too was made by God and originally was without fault. So, man's experience, I'm suggesting, you see, at the beginning was perfectly spiritual, but it was very ordinary. Does that surprise you? And here was man, Adam and Eve, having this relationship with the living God, having this relationship with one another, having this relationship with the perfect nature that God had created, and all of it within these categories. That's what made it so special. That's what made it man, the image of God, that man was able to have all of these experiences. I'm going to use the expression faculties, okay? It's not the best, but it will help. All these different faculties express our being the image. Now here we come to the post-fall situation. Now, as we read in Genesis 3, the relationship with God is broken. I've put that at the top. This barrier exists between God and man. Not because God wanted it to be that way, but because man has made it that way by turning his back on God. And God in His mercy has provided us with a way back to a relationship with Him. Promised back there in Genesis 3. Fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. And when He died on the cross, the work was finished. So that He was then raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And has made it possible for all men to return into a relationship with God on the basis of His grace, His kindness. Now, I should dwell on that and I'll come back to it later because this is the center of Christianity. But the point I'm trying to stress now is what happened to the rectangular blocks? Uh, were they eliminated? Was it like just taking a, a, a duster and, and, and uh, scrubbing them from the blackboard? Was that lost to man, in other words, when there was this disaster in Genesis 3? By no means. The biblical picture is, as I've tried to represent here, of the rectangles all being distorted and taking strange shapes. So that we don't think right. We don't live right. 
Sometimes we think things are beautiful, they're not beautiful. And sometimes we live without compassion in the world. Our emotions are all distorted and so on. Now, here comes the organizing principle. The biblical picture, it seems to me, is this. Christian spirituality is simply the restoration of the image of God. What was broken is now restored. And that is why Christ came, not merely to pay the price of sin, that was essential, but also, also to restore us day by day, as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, from one degree of glory to another, gradually restoring us until, and that's where the arrows are at the right there, until that final day when the restoration will be complete. Note, still including all of those rectangles. We don't become ghosts up there. We, we don't lose our personality, our imageness. We don't lose these faculties. And the Bible even goes to the extent of suggesting that the body is restored so precious is the image to God that all of what we are is restored. And that is that great day that we are awaiting when Christ returns in glory and restores all things. So what is Christian spirituality? The restoration of the image of God. Let me use a simple illustration. We have much talk today of pollution. Now, when the water that uh, we need is polluted, we do not, as it were, eliminate the water. We don't try to get rid of it. We purify it. And that is what God's intention is in salvation is to purify that which has become polluted. Or take another illustration. One of these masterpieces that hangs in a gallery in London. And it's so beautiful, priceless. And people go and look at it and they admire it. That was man before the fall. A masterpiece. And now the masterpiece is d destroyed in, in some way. Uh, um, someone vandalizes it, goes up to it with a knife and slashes it. Tragedy. Read about it in the press. Now, is that canvas taken and junked? Of course not. A process of restoration, that's actually the word that is used, is begun which restores it to its former glory. And that is what God is doing with us. Now, there are three important implications from all this. There are others that we could dwell on. I'm trying to be very, um, very brief in this. The first is, and this has already been uh, stressed in what Richard said, spirituality includes the whole of life. Spirituality includes the whole of life. We pick up the newspaper. All right, it's not the Bible. And again, I'm not trying to demean the Bible. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm just trying to make the point that reading the newspaper is also a spiritual activity, as I'll come to discuss tomorrow in, dis in talking about the development of a Christian mind, because Paul says the spiritual man, woman included, uh, the spiritual man does what? Judges all things. Judges all things. In other words, is assessing on the basis of God's truth what's being said here in the newspaper. Is it accurate? Is it not accurate? A textbook on sociology. What I hear from my friends, and so on and so forth. The whole of life is spiritual. Secondly, there are no degrees 
of spiritual activity, as if one activity is more spiritual than another. I personally believe that if we wanted to restore this nation, which I believe we do desire, one of the things that we would encourage is Christians to go and restore the media. Is that a Christian calling? To go into the media? To seek to restore it? Is it less of a Christian calling because it involves art and production and you know, the whole thing, TV, music, and so on? Is it less than going to the ministry? I want to suggest that the, the, the Bible knows no superiority and inferiority. The only question it asks of us is, will you serve the living God? and give Him everything and work for His glory, whether in journalism or in medicine or in farming and so on and so forth. Thirdly, and very importantly, and I wish I had time to expand on this, even though the New Testament may not speak about such things as political involvement by Christians, it doesn't. Or about medical science or hospitals. It doesn't. The New Testament doesn't mention that. Or artistic creativity, going to art school and painting pictures and sculpture and so on and so forth, right? Doesn't mention that, does it? Is it invalid for that reason? Or drama, or academia, that is, schools and universities and colleges and so on. doesn't mention any of this, does it? Now, I would say the fact that it does not, does not mean that these activities are illegitimate for us as Christians, as if they are not spiritual activities. And only things that are mentioned in the New Testament are spiritual. Quite the contrary. We know that these things are a natural outworking of this organizing principle that is laid down there in Genesis chapter 1, which is expressed through the Old Testament and which just flows over naturally into the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't need to mention these things because they are so fundamental to our experience as the image of God. I use the expression, the warp and woof of Scripture, to try to show this. You don't have to find a text on abortion in the New Testament, for example. There isn't one. There's hardly one in the Old Testament. To know that this is a great evil because we have from the very beginning laid down in this organizing principle that I've talked about, the image of God, the value of man made in the image of God, each individual. And so we can see here this warp and woof principle at work in all of these areas. Of course God is concerned with artistic activity. He made a beautiful universe. We are His image. We are to be like Him. That's what it says. Now, I must move to the second part. I have three parts in this talk. But please remember that what I've given you so far is really just an introduction to the whole subject of spirituality. Of course this is not all the Bible says about spirituality, by any means. It is merely the framework, what they call in philosophy, prolegomenon, sort of the beginnings, you know, just to get started. It gives you, in other words, just the context within which spirituality is to be understood. It's important, nevertheless, if I can use an illustration, I'm, I have in my mind now a motorbike, a motorcycle, two wheels, and an engine that sits in the middle. And so far, I have been dealing with the first wheel. Okay? 
I'm going to go on and deal with the second wheel. But a motorcycle is of no value. The wheels are of no value if you don't have the engine. And what is the engine, if you like, of the biblical teaching about spirituality? The second wheel is the whole question of what, in view of what we've been saying about spirituality, the organizing principle and so on, and just to, to put it simply again, what, what sort of a word do you want to use about all this view of spirituality that we've dealt with? There's only one word that is uh, appropriate, it seems to me, and that is this. It's a glorious word. Affirmation. An affirmation of our humanity. That it's precious to God. It's like this. It's the possibility of experiencing what it is like to be the image of the living God. What a priceless treasure. Okay? Now, if what we have said so far is an affirmation of our humanity, of our personness, what do we make? I'm coming to the second wheel. What do we make of all of those texts about the spiritual life, particularly in the New Testament, which seem to contradict that affirmation? They seem to be very much a negation, like denying ourselves, losing our life, being crucified to the world, Galatians 6, carrying in about in our bodies the dying of the Lord Jesus, carrying about in our bodies the dying of the Lord Jesus, 2 Corinthians 4, or Philippians 3, just after the passage that was read to us. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings becoming like Him in His death. What's all that about? How do these things fit together? You see, the problem historically has been this, as I see it, that because there has been an absence of an organizing principle, some have come to the second group of texts, what I've called the second wheel, and they have read these as if the spiritual life is essentially a negation. And I'm going to be speaking about this on another occasion, about Watchman Nee, unhappily. I have to say this, for all that they're very valuable things in Watchman Nee. What about this putting to death of the soul, which he defines as the mind, the emotions, and the will? How about that? You mean I have to get rid of my whole self? Because that's what it is, mind, emotions, will. Now, this is only one aspect of this misconception of the spiritual life. We have seen many others. Just think, as you think back through history, of the ascetic practices that have passed as Christian spirituality in the history of the church. But now I must, before I go to deal with the second wheel, uh, I must, first of all, just say a little bit about the engine because I'm very afraid that from what I've said thus far, someone might take away the impression that I'm talking about going back to the Garden of Eden uh, and just getting ourselves sorted out and uh, being more creative and so on. Far from it, as you'll see. But essentially, the thing that I'm afraid about is that Christ will not be seen to be at the center of this whole thing. He is, if I can use this illustration of the motorcycle, the engine. Okay, so we do have to be restored. These uh, rectangles which have got distorted do have to be put back together. That's the whole goal of our spiritual experience. But that's only context, as I said. That's only framework. What's the center? The center is where all the problem lies because the center is my heart which the Bible says is desperately wicked. 
And who can change it? And who can change it? And the biblical picture is quite simply this. There is only one thing that can change the sinful heart, and that is Jesus. He alone can do it. First of all, by dying on the cross for our sins to take the guilt that we deserve for our sin and restoring us to a relationship with Himself. But secondly, and this is the key, now that is not just something historical, but He has brought me into a relationship with Himself. Except the branch abide in the vine. It cannot bear fruit. So unless I'm in that moment-by-moment relationship with Jesus, thanking Him for what He has done for me, enjoying His love, I cannot be changed. This is the engine. Do you see what I mean? The motorcycle can't go if there isn't that engine. The wheels are valueless. So this is the concentration, the focus of the New Testament in terms of spirituality. What does Paul say? I want to know Christ. Uh, What did we read just beforehand? Let this mind be in you. Which mind? Which you find in Christ Jesus. And the passage which I find sums it all up, and I can only refer to it, please go home and read it for yourselves. Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul says, I pray that you may be strengthened by His Spirit. Where? In the inner man. That's where the problem lies, isn't it? Strengthened. God has to strengthen us internally. He has to work something in us. I pray that He will do that. With this consequence, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that we may enjoy Him, His marvelous love for us, the security that we have because He is our Savior, a very present help in trouble, and so on. And so, by means of this, gradually to be changed, as Paul says, so that we, along with all the saints, may know the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of Christ, which passes understanding, and so be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the engine, you see. All the other discussion that I've had is vital, it seems to me, about the organizing principle, but it is only prolegomenon. It's only the framework. It's only the context. It's vital, but we mustn't be confused. Now, I must... Hurry on. I wanted to read for you. I have it, but I'm running out of time. A wonderful sonnet by Michelangelo, which speaks of this. I can't read it all, but uh, not many people know about the sonnets of Michelangelo in the 16th century. But listen to this on prayer. It, it sums up what I'm trying to say in the short second section. What sweetness will attend my acts of prayer if thou... To pray to thee, wilt give me power. Within my heart's bleak soul, no means are found, fruits to produce of innate excellence. Thou art the seed of just and holy works. Where'er thy power is felt, they germinate. And I love this. None have the heroic will to follow thee, unless thou teach them first thy beauteous ways. And you see, that's what I'm getting at. This is the engine. I hope I've made the point. Now, following on to the final uh, section, thirdly. Okay, so there's that affirmation, which is the essence of spirituality. What do we say about the apparent negation? Carrying about in my body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Losing my life, etc. Hating my life. That's what Jesus said. Now, to put it very simply, it seems to me it runs like this. 
To be the image bearers of God now, that is, within this fallen world, we have to learn to be the imitators of Christ. Especially in his, and I put it in quotes, in his loss. Not just image bearers of God, but, says the New Testament, imitators of Christ. Ephesians 5.1 Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and, here's the loss, gave himself up for us. What did he do? He gave himself completely up for us. He lost everything. In that wonderful passage, I didn't ask it to be read, Philippians 2, who though he was very God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped and held on. He gave it away, gave it up to become our Savior. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, very interesting verse, because it's so human. I'm not seeking my own good, says Paul, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Now you, follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. You see? Be imitators of Christ. He saw his whole life to be an imitation of Christ. That's what he meant when he said, I carry about in my body the dying of the Lord Jesus. He was prepared to give up everything. So the emphasis upon loss, I'm, I'm, I'm stressing now, is quite clear in the New Testament. There's no avoiding it. And, and very specially, it is not confined simply to the special Christians. Romans 12.1 Present your bodies a living sacrifice which is your spiritual worship. There's no alternative. That's what it is. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, to deal with the problem. First, two things. We have to understand, firstly, that this emphasis upon, quote, loss is not a contradiction of our principle. Far from it. The more you understand it, the more you look at it and really dwell on it, the more you realize it is a marvelous confirmation of the principle that life is essentially, the spiritual life, is essentially an affirmation. Why? Because what has to be remembered in reference to this principle is that we are not being called to be restored as image bearers of God in a utopian situation, you know, like paradise. Now everything's fine, and now we get all the boxes fixed up. No, no. We are in an abnormal world, a sad world that needs redemption, that needs restoration, and which, ipso facto, from that fact alone, necessitates the cost of something. Jesus had to give up something in order to come to save us. No one is going to be helped in this world, not just saved spiritually, but helped in this world without the giving of something, the loss of something. So, the calling remains the same, like we saw in that diagram. That is, to have the distorted rectangles straightened out, our whole human experience purified bit by bit. We have to be changed into what the image was supposed to be before the fall, to become more human, not less. And so we affirm all aspects of our humanity. We see spirituality to be in terms of the ordinary things of life, family, work, beauty, creativity. These are not things which are sort of peripheral to spirituality. And we go to church to be spiritual. We read our Bibles to be spiritual. Yeah, we do do those things to be spiritual. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not speaking against them. But spirituality involves the whole of life. Politics, literature, entertainment, and so on and so on. 
uh, a Dutch theologian by the name of Herman Baving puts it very beautifully. Grace, that is salvation, does not serve to take man up into a supernatural order, but to liberate him from sin. Grace, he says, is not opposed to nature, meaning the rectangles. It's not opposed to nature. God made it like that. That's what spirituality is supposed to include and involve. Grace is not opposed to nature, but only to sin. End of quote. Now, however, since the process of being liberated from sin lies within this fallen world, then to be truly without sin, or to put it another way, to really love, to really be the image of God, we have to be prepared at any time to put the interests of others in front of our own. In fact, we cannot love without doing this. And so Paul's admonition, have this attitude in you which you find in Christ Jesus. But now note, we see how this is not a contradiction of the principle because this is the supreme affirmation of our humanity. The highest expression of our imageness, made in the image of God, is that we should love. How did Jesus sum, sum up the whole of the law of the Old Testament? On these two commandments hang all the law. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Thou shalt love. So firstly, to live like this is at one and the same time the highest affirmation of ourselves, myself, and secondly, the highest affirmation of the person that I am serving, that I am seeking to help. Secondly, to live like this selflessly, while it may indeed appear to involve loss, and actually be that in a sense, Jesus did lose something. He did lay aside something. It wasn't make-believe. It was real. Someone like James Fraser, who went to Lisuland as a missionary, was a very fine pianist. And practically for the whole of his life, he could never play a piano again, just occasionally, when he went to headquarters in China. And the only enjoyment that he could have of music, apart from his memory, was reading scores, riding on the back of a mule. You know, just reading the music and just saying, oh, it's wonderful, it's beautiful. Ah, he lost something. He gave it up for God's service. Yeah, so we're not trying to treat this lightly. But, my point is, secondly, in the final analysis, this is not loss. What does Jesus say? He who loses his life will gain it, will find it in two ways. Firstly, subjectively, in my own experience, since I'm designed to live like this, the more I do live like this, the more I will be fulfilled. So the more I live as the imitator of Christ, it's a great mystery, of course. It doesn't seem like it's going to work this way. But it actually means the restoration of myself, the fulfillment of myself. As Paul puts it, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. Or St. Augustine in his great uh, prayer, 5th century, whom to serve is perfect freedom. That's what this first expression is. The second is objectively. Because the Bible really is true, and because death has an answer in Christ's victory, and because we are going on into a future experience, and this is not just mumbo-jumbo religious language, because that is the case, as Jesus said, there is the placing of treasure in heaven. And every act, no matter how small a cup of cold water, is not lost. It's not, it doesn't sort of disappear. It is a reality. And that reality will be seen eventually, the treasure laid up in heaven. Now, this has all been very brief and hurried. Those are my two wheels of the motorbike. I have stressed those 
simply because that is the subject we're looking at, namely the biblical view of spirituality and the places where there has been so much confusion in the church's history. But remember my point, those are not the engine. The engine is Christ. But it's essential that there be wheels, otherwise the cycle doesn't work either. It's essential to understand, in other words, in conclusion, that Christian spirituality is the restoration of the image of God. Amen. We don't have time now. I just would like to mention that it occurred to me that if I did one of my three workshops this evening as against the other two, uh, namely the ghetto mentality one, and that's what I will do this evening, it would make it possible for us to continue this discussion because that's really uh, involving these same issues. So if you have questions that are really pressing and you can't get them answered now, we could go on afterwards. Yes? Does anyone have a question? Is there just the one workshop? I know oh, there are three workshops. Sorry, I thought you understood that. There are three workshops simultaneously. We have three workshops, and they are. You want to mention them right now? Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll go on to mention that. You Ian's workshop, which questions on medical ethics? We're we'll just going to mention that. Yeah, just a moment. They'll be explained. Right. <coughs> yes. See, so uh, where you started out by saying um, about uh, you know this past past hundred years and this irony uh, mm. that we're in, um, and it's like in some ways asking like well, uh, something of an indictment uh, to us uh, as Christians. What, why do you think we've gone so far wrong? Um, I think it's um, it's a very big big subject. This question. Did you all hear that at the back? Why why have we taken this wrong route. Is that, is that a way of summarizing it over the last hundred years? I think, um, I think it's a very big subject, and I can only just quickly sketch what I think were some of the factors involved. The one was that a, an attack was made upon Christianity as great as any attack that has ever been made on the church in history. And that attack was the philosophy of the Enlightenment, which was the uh, previous century, that is in the 18th century, in the 1700s, which came before the French Revolution, which made the French Revolution so different. The bloody revolution, you remember. The reign of terror and so on. It was a humanistic revolution. It was the beginning of this philosophy of humanism which now has overrun the whole of our culture is in the process of trying to overrun the whole world. And we, in the light of that, mustn't be critical or simplistically critical of our forefathers who faced that struggle. I mean, the, the Christians in the early church, they had other sorts of problems, and they were very costly. But Jim Packer, in one of his books, I can't remember which, which it is, but he suggests that perhaps this assault on the Christian faith that arose in the 18th century and came to fruition around about the end of the 19th century in our culture, say 1900, that this was perhaps the greatest attack that there has ever been. Now, in the middle of that, where I feel we were weak, was that there had already crept in through a number of things, partly, I think, the influence through Wesley, I have to say this, not that he himself was to blame, but the, the Methodists and the, and the revival movement had tended, they themselves were clear about it, I think, most of them, but, but it had tended to stress the importance of experience rather than thinking. Experience rather than thinking. It became a, um, a habit, really, of um, the evangelical churches to have evangelism that was directed largely at the emotions and not so much at the mind. Not that there wasn't that, but it, it was a tendency. And gradually, there was first of all a, an inability because of the unpreparedness of the mind 
There's an inability to face this onslaught. I picture it like this, you know, in the Second World War, one of these big battleships came out to sea, and then the, the word got around, the battleships, the battleships come out, now we must go after this battleship. And then we go out in our tiny little rowing boats. Yeah. You're going to get blown out the water. It's a bit like that. There were valiant attempts made, but the attack was in the area of philosophy. The Christians were concentrating on missions, evangelism, and in, in some way beginning to say, not all of them by any means, but beginning to say, oh, the mind's not so important now. Just concentrate on getting people saved, you see. Concentrate on the spiritual. Read your Bible. Don't read these novels. You know, one of the famous uh, 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 pictures that uh, Van Gogh, who was raised as a Christian in Holland, painted, it's a dramatic picture when he turned away from Christianity. He painted a picture of a great big family Bible on the table. And next to it was a candle. And the candle had gone out. And next to that was a little book, such a tiny little book, so insignificant. Emile uh, Zola, Joie de Vivre, The Joy of Life. That's the humanist, you see. Forget this religion. I'm going to have joy. Joy. I mean, now we've seen the end of the story. But you see, that is a tremendous, we've, that was a tremendous testimony that he was making of a turn. Now you see, was it of importance to read these novels, to understand them, to counteract them? Uh, my father-in-law, Dr. Schaefer, said that if the Christians in, in, in the United States, and we must learn from this, all of us, if the Christians had understood what was going on in the armory show, which took place during the First World War, First World War, an art show, that was the famous one in which Marcel Duchamp went out and he uh, took a urinal you know, from a, from a toilet and he stuck it in the, uh, in the art as his exhibition. And you say, oh, insignificant. I mean, this is junk. He's making a philosophical statement. And those people won the day because there wasn't a sufficient understanding of what was going on. They were taking the view that, oh, you don't want to do that. You don't want to go and study art. You, know, you don't want to go and study philosophy. Go to and study uh, plays, you see? That sort of attitude. And then, secondly, and this is the worst of it all, and I'll close with that, they even started to justify this, um, I call it anti-culturalism or a-culturalism, whichever you like. They either said, no culture, you know, no, not for us, or it's irrelevant. Either one of those. They started to justify that attitude in relation to the scriptures. And they said, you see, the Bible teaches it. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Beware of vain philosophy, Colossians chapter 2. You see, the gospel is foolish, foolishness, you see. And they took text, and that's why I, I gave this, this lecture this evening, was to show how subtle it is. People will take a text like that and give it a very different meaning than was intended at the beginning. Paul was not speaking against philosophy, against an interest in ideas when he said that in Colossians 2, what he was speaking against. As he goes on to say, philosophy, which is according to human traditions, namely, the philosophy that starts with man, not the ideas that come from God, anyway. So I think that it's a very big subject, but I, that's just some of the aspects that were involved. Church was weakened already, a huge attack. They then defensively started to justify their withdrawal from the battle. Yes. Um, you described the church as being in a state of stagnation and decline, which I think um, everyone would, would agree applies to the state in the Western. Yes. The Western mm. I think I've heard in uh, many people's experiences that overall, in fact, the worldwide the church is fact growing mm. at a large rate than mm. ever before. <laughs> and I was wondering how that fitted into your analysis, whether you see that the, the pattern of spirituality in developing countries is one, an integrated one, described as affirmation of human nature, or, or whether it, um, it, it, it doesn't fit into your analysis. 
Well, this is one of the very interesting things, but also, I think, rather sad things that's going on uh, for various reasons, partly, I think, because these cultures did not sustain in the same way that we did this attack, this tidal wave of humanistic philosophy. It hit them eventually, but at at the time that the missionaries arrived, they were living, and still do in large part, within a religious view of reality. So the idea of evil spirits and, and uh, angels and God and prayer and so on was not something which was alien to them as it became within the humanistic society where all religion was wiped out, do you see? And hence many, many people in those cultures became Christians. And this is wonderful. However, and this is the sad bit, because we from the West, with this uh, attitude that I described, this weakness and then this justification of our weakness in terms of what the Scripture teaches, because of that, what was taken into, quote, the missionary countries was a sort of a pietistic, aculturalist attitude towards spirituality, sadly. And as a result, what we have begun to see, I think, well, we've seen a number of things. One is that the cultures that have become Christian, in quotes, they, the societies, I should say, not the culture, the societies, where many have become Christian, have not so far experienced what we enjoyed at the time of the Reformation, that's in the, in the 16th century, namely, because of this concept of spirituality being the Lordship of Christ over the whole of life, we saw the whole thing turn around. We don't, we don't realize what an amazing thing was achieved back there by our forefathers who said, here we stand, where? On the Bible. And brought the whole culture to a different thing. So there's a fundamental difference between historically, even between Catholic and, and Protestant ca- uh, uh, cultures in Europe. So, so important is this subject. But what we have not yet seen is any of these societies in which there has been a turning to Christ in large numbers turn the culture around? Do you see what I'm saying? That, that's one very sad thing. But the second, I had personal experience of when my wife and I were in Nepal where our daughter is a missionary. And one of the leaders happened to sit next to us at breakfast one day and we got talking about the church in, in Nepal of which he was a founding member. And uh, as you know, Nepal was closed not only to the gospel, but to, the, to any outsiders, until as recently as about 1957. So then very recently, Christians have been able to go in there. They still aren't allowed to preach the gospel openly. It all has to be very quietly done. And if you uh, convert, you go to prison for a year, can do. If you convert someone, you go for six. But anyway, in this situation, of course, they're under great pressure. And one doesn't underestimate that. But this leader told us a very sad thing. My wife was asking him, what's going on? How's the church? I imagine. And and we often hear this said, the persecuted church is the church that grows. The persecuted church in North Africa died. Never recovered. The whole of North Africa was Christian. That was where St. Augustine was that I spoke about. St. Augustine of Hippo. North Africa. The whole of North Africa was Christian. It's never been so again. And so we shouldn't deal, you know, treat these things lightly. And what he said was this. We are losing our own children. We are losing our own children to the Marxist influence coming out of the universities. So they are raised within Christian families, I mean, real Christian families. And because they have not been given a Christian mind, they go up to the university, 80% of the university population, it's, it's almost unbelievable for us to, to think of this in a sense, especially now, after all that's been happening in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, but it's true. We saw the, the Marxist propaganda from China has just poured in, and they're losing their younger folk to that. Now, pray God that will be reversed. But I think this is what I would add to the to the story of all the conversions, lest we think it's a simple, simple issue. 
Yes, anything else? Someone had a question up here somewhere and I, earlier on. I, yes? Where does this leave We've just got five minutes left. Where does this leave our view of leisure and <coughs> relaxation ourselves? Because I, I agree with everything you've said, but yes. it still leaves us in attention. Yes. Uh, you know, like tomorrow, should I go and enjoy the beauty right. of the Chibia Hill yes. or come here? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm so glad you raised that. The question was, um, where does this leave one with respect to um, leisure and uh, the whole tension that one finds between these two pulls, the pull to uh, the enjoyment of these things which are, quote, natural in the good sense, and then the, um, the call to serve, to, to, to lose one's life, etc. I would just simply say that there is no answer to this, this tension, seriously, because you're living in it, I'm living in it. it. The tension itself is part of the abnormal world that we cannot simply go out and enjoy the flowers. We can. But there is the knowledge of my neighbor who is suffering terribly from some illness or some sadness in the family and so on. And I, and I can help in that. If I go to, to, towards that, I can help. And so there is that tension. Now, we cannot avoid it. And the only thing that makes it bearable, first of all, the tension, and within which, secondly, there can be some sort of direction. Oh, so which of these two things should I do is to stay close to the Lord. And he, it sounds trite to say this, but if we are in that position, then he will show us which way to go. Not that we aren't making decisions within this, but we will be trusting him and he will use us to the full. So, you have in the New Testament the examples of Jesus telling his disciples, quite apart from the law in the Old Testament, the commandments, that you should take one day in seven, you have him speaking of leisure and saying, let's go and have a break. When he gets out there to have the break, so there's the legitimacy of that. When he gets out there, he finds the crowd and so he serves. There's the tension. It's not easy. We don't get the answers all right. As a, as a family person, thinking of a family, but the same problems uh, relate to single people also. Uh, you do, do too much one way, and then you, do, you find you have to pull back, and then you do too much the other, and you have to pull back. You'll never get it right, but God is leading us and delivering us within the imperfection. But the tension remains until we come to be with Him forever. <laughs>